As we were singing that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it reminded me of a psalm that I, that I often use for funerals. It wasn't part of the plan for today, but it seems fitting somehow. How many of you could use strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? Sometimes, however, trust is hard. It can be a a real challenge to trust the Lord. The psalmist David knew exactly what that trust issue felt like. Sometimes in the midst of our struggles, Christian platitudes can seem like the cruelest words. Sometimes when the circumstances threaten to overwhelm us and to just drown us, it can feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And we talk about God is good all the time, and He is. There is no question. And we believe, or at least we tell ourselves that we believe that God is with us and that God cannot fail us. But then the doctor says, I'm sorry, it's cancer. Then the judge says, I'm sorry, I can't protect this child. Then the lawyer says, I'm sorry, I can't keep you from losing your job in this situation. Or your mate says, I've had enough. Your child says, I'm not coming back. What then? What of trusting God then? In Psalm 69, David wrote, Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. And he goes on throughout this psalm to talk about his enemies that he feels overwhelmed by. And you know, that same David in Psalm 40 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. 
He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. The Psalms are replete with the fear and the struggle and the strain and the anxiety of just dealing with the junk of life. And yet, over and over and over and over again, the man of God turns his attention and says, this is my problem, but I will hope in God. Period. I will turn my attention to Him. Jeremiah is dealing with this in the book of Lamentations. Having prophesied that God would judge His people, when he gets to the book of Lamentations, God has already poured out that judgment. And it's more than he can stand. Jeremiah is despairing. He's overcome. The people of God have fallen to depths he never imagined. They've blamed him for it. His heart's been broken. He feels abandoned by God. He says in Lamentations 3, starting in verse 16, he's He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. (laughs) I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone. And all that I had hoped from the Lord. Ever feel like that? You know, I um, I think as Christians, it's really easy for us to put on the smile, to put on the show. To act like everything's okay, because that's the job, right? We have, to, we have to act like everything's okay. Like it's easy to trust God. Like we don't have fears. Like we don't have struggles. Jeremiah says, I, I don't even know what to do with all this. Sometimes we feel like God Himself has deprived us of peace. And we forget, give up on all that we had hoped for from the Lord. Same prophet. Very next verse. In the midst of of saying, God has pierced my heart with arrows from His quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He's filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. In the midst of this, verse 21, he says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him. 
to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I think what's interesting to me is nothing's changed in his situation. I don't even think anything's changed in his feelings. He's still lamenting. He's still overwhelmed. Israel is still abandoned by God, at least for a time. So much so that they are unrecognizable as God's people. God. He still says in verse 49, My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. I don't think his feelings have changed. I don't think his circumstances have changed at all. They're still in the midst of that and will be for some time yet. So what's, what's the answer? I know who God is. I know His character. His unfailing, unchanging character. How do I know this? Because He has always been faithful in the past. Jeremiah, David, Moses, Joshua, and the people of God today are able to deal with the wither because they know the whence. What the heck did he just say? They're able to deal with the unknown where they are going because they know from whence they came. They know what has happened before. We're able to look back and rely on what God has done for us and in us. What He has done for His people throughout the ages. We're able to look to the Scriptures and say, Oh, here is God acting, even when His people don't know it. We, we just went through a whole section of that a little while ago in Numbers in Numbers 22 to 24, where God is working on behalf of His people, they don't even know what's going on. They're not even involved. They're not on the scene. And yet God is doing what only God can do. Here today in Numbers 33, we take a look at the journey so far. And it's not an accident that as we come toward the end, we've got a couple more chapters left, but as we come to the end of the action, things, uh, things are, are, are just about to blow up for the, for the children of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land. Now, we won't get to that actual narrative until we get to the book of Joshua. There's some conversations that take place that take up the whole book of Deuteronomy. But in the midst of this, God says, hey, Moses... I want you to write all this down. Here are the stages of the journey so far. And as he does this, he then goes on to say, okay, we've seen the journey. You've remembered all that has happened since you left Egypt. Now when you go into this place, here's what you got to do. Allow me to read from Numbers 33, verses 50 and following. 
And just so that we don't forget that this is God's Word, I would invite you, if you're able, to stand out of reverence for His Word. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, give a smaller smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. This is the Word of God. Receive it in faith as such. Father, thank You for Your Word. Now we ask that You would transform us by it. Help us to see by Your Holy Spirit what it is that You want us to know. Silence the voice of anyone, anything that might exalt itself above the knowledge of You. Lord, help us not only to be hearers of Your Word, but to be doers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this text, we read really just the the last portion, the smallest portion, but the point of this particular chapter. As we look at it, it begins, as you can see in verse 1, where it would normally begin. It begins this way. Here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt by divisions under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey. This is their journey by stages. And then he goes on to to list out this huge litany of places that they went. Now, if you've been paying attention through the book of Numbers, you may notice most of these places are not mentioned. We don't talk about them. You may also notice as you read through this, which for the sake of time we won't do together this morning, but But as you read this, I would encourage you, discipline yourself to actually read through it. Don't skip over it. It's it's normal for us when we get to genealogies and and censuses and things like this. We just want to skip over it. That's that's boring. That's tedious. Don't allow the Western weakness to, to take over. We want to see it. We want to recognize it because God put it there on purpose. As we look at this, you might recognize there are some major things left out. Some of the biggest stories in the book of Numbers aren't included, at least not specifically and explicitly, in this recounting of what has taken place. Why is that? Hopefully we'll see as we go. But what we do see is God is reminding them of where they have been and what He has done for them along the way. Notice verse 3, the Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month, the day after the Passover. Okay, so that 
connects them back. They're remembering what happened when they left Egypt. He doesn't have to go into the details of it. The Passover does that. When they celebrate the Passover, it reminds them of the plagues that came on Egypt so that they're aware of God's delivering them. He continues, They marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. For the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Now notice, these are people that have been slaves for 400 years. Not them personally, but you know, for, for 400 plus years they've been in Egypt. Somewhere along the way, after Joseph passes, the, the, the pharaohs begin to use them only as a, a workforce, as a slave. And by the time we get to the end, a pharaoh who does not remember Joseph, does not care about the past, is now treating them contemptuously. They cry out to God, whom they are not apparently actively worshiping as they should. They have not yet received the law, so the forms of worship that they would have now aren't there in Egypt. Clearly, as we all can identify with, there is an impact of of swimming in the soup of paganism and godlessness there in Egypt. God rescues them out of that. He delivers them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And they don't just skulk out. They don't sneak out. They go out boldly. Formerly slaves. And they leave with the Egyptians actually giving them their goods. Here, take, take all our stuff. Here's, here's, take some money. Take some gold. Take, take the microwave. Take the television. Take the car. It's, it's all yours, right? God did that. They had a fear of the Israelites' God, not of the might of the Israelites, their slaves. In fact, in in very short order, like 30 seconds later, Pharaoh changes his mind, says, "Get, get the army, we're going after them. They mount up in chariots, they go out there. Along the journey here, we see that they come to the Red Sea, and the Lord parts the sea. Uh, Verse 5, Israelites left Ramses and camped at Succoth. They left Succoth, camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. They left Etham, turned back to to Pi-Hirath, to the east of of Baal-Saphon, and camped near Migdal. They left Pi-Hirath and passed through the sea into the desert. And when they had traveled for three days in the desert of Etham, they camped at Marah. So God reminds them that He has delivered them. They, They come through the sea they know that this is the hand of God in the hand of God alone delivering them from the most powerful army and government that anybody has heard of. This is the superpower of the area. And then they get to Mara. Mara is a place where they grumble against the Lord. But you know, God doesn't mention it here. They left Mara, went on to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. So they don't talk about, God doesn't remind them of, of their sin there, but He does remind them of His provision at Elam. He brings them to this beautiful place. They left Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They went, went you know, along the Red Sea here and camped. They left the Red Sea and camped in the Desert of Sin, and they left the Desert of Sin and camped at Dovka. They left Dovka and camped at Alush. They left Alush 
encamped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. Interesting. Here, he points out that there's no water for the people to drink. Before that, the people grumbled and complained that there was no water to drink. He leaves that out. Here, there's no water, and God brings water out of the rock. He has Moses go and strike the rock, and, and good things happen. The water gushes out, and the people are provided for. And that's it. No, no mention of anything else. They move on. They left Rephidim and camped at the desert of Sinai. Here, in the desert of Sinai, between verses 15 and 16, is where they received the law. The entire book of Leviticus, you know, a good chunk of the book of Exodus happens here. whole book of Leviticus. It's where we start out in Numbers. You may remember back at the beginning when we first have the census and God is ordering His people. He's ordering their lives around Himself. This all happens in the desert of Sinai. And they camped at Kibroth Hata'ava. So then we see in Numbers 11, 34, and 35 that they, when they set out, this is where they're setting out from. They left Kibroth Hata'ava and camped at Hazaroth. So we go through this whole list, and we won't go through them all, but this, this litany of places that they stop and camp. You might notice there's a pretty big event left out. Anybody remember in chapters 13 and 14, they get to the verge of the promised land? I mean, it's pretty quick. It's early on, right? They've only, they've only set out you know, for a very brief time. They get to the verge of the promised land. They send 12 spies in. Sound familiar? And, and 10 of those spies come back, and they say, wow, this is awesome, but we can't go in there because there's giants and bad guys. We've got to go back. This is terrible. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, what are you talking about? Are you nuts? God is with us. He's promised us this land. He's already given it to us. We just got to go in and take it. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the people rebel. And God rejects that generation. And all of these things that we see here are what takes place over the next 40 years. And God doesn't mention their rebellion, and the reason for their wanderings. Interesting. We go along, we come, come back through it. Verse 36, you can jump fast forward there with your remote control. Uh, they left Ezion, Geber, and camped at Kadesh in the desert of Zin. Now an interesting thing happens at Kadesh we see another grumbling by the people of God. They've done the wandering, they've come back, and now they grumble again. And they face judgment from God for that. And God doesn't mention it. Just reminds them where they were. They're not there now. They left Kadesh, camped on Mount Hor, on the border of Edom, you may remember Edom, the descendants of Esau. They came to Edom and wanted to pass through to, to have a, just a, a direct route to the promised land. Edom said no. God said, these are your brothers. We're not going to fight against them. You go around them. At the Lord's command, Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. 
Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now, as, as you read that, it kind of has the feel uh, uh, of a, a monumentous, uh, monumental and momentous occasion. See, when I conflate words like that, it gets confusing. And no mention is here of the reason Aaron died on Mount Hor. God told him why he was going to die. He told Moses the same thing. It just hasn't happened yet, or it would be recorded as well. But the reason for it is that they sinned against God back in chapter 20. At the grumbling at Meribah Kadesh. And Moses says, how long do I have to put up with you people? Do I have to, do I have to bring water out of this rock for you? Wait, who's bringing water out of the rock? Moses fails in that moment. Moses and Aaron together fail to uphold the holiness of God, to present him, to honor him as holy before the people. And Moses strikes the rock like he did the time before, as if the striking were the point when God told him to speak to the rock. And in case you missed it, obedience to God is the point. He's the one that brings the water, not Moses and Aaron. And God says, because you failed to honor me as holy before the people, you will not be the one to bring them in to the promised land. You'll be gathered to your people. And both Moses and Aaron die with honor, but short of the intended completion of this journey. There's a consequence to their sin. But God doesn't mention it here. He's not bringing up Aaron's past. Just among the people recognizing this great loss of a great man of God. Then they go on in verse 40. The Canaanite king of Arad, <clears throat> excuse me, who lived in the Negev of Canaan, heard that the Israelites were coming. We see this in, in chapter 21. And a rod comes out against them. The Israelites wipe them out. They go to God and say, Lord, we just ask that you would be with us in this. And God is with them. And they wipe them out. 41, they left Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. They left Zalmona and camped at Punan. They left Punan and camped at Oboth. Again, we see in Numbers 21, here in verse 10, that they're in Oboth and they camped at uh, Ea Abarim on the border of Moab. And in Numbers 21, 10, and 11, the Israelites take on the nations, the kings of Sihon and Og, and they wipe them out. These Amorite kings who are there next to the, to the Moabites, they just decimate them. And when, they, when the king of Moab next door hears about it, he's stricken with fear. What am I going to do? These people are mighty. I can't beat them in battle. And so he hires the, the false prophet, the pagan prophet, the, the, the seer for hire, Balaam, to come and put a curse on them. If I can't beat them with the military, maybe, maybe we can beat them spiritually, we'll, we'll, we'll get them to curse them. And then I can go in and, and take them. 
And long story short, God uses some uh, extraordinary means to use the pagan prophet to bring a true word from God to the pagan king to speak blessing over Israel. And the pagan king gets pretty upset. He's not happy about it. You ain't getting paid, brother, because you failed. You were supposed to curse them. All you do is bless them, get out of my sight, and I'm keeping the check. Along the way, and it's not mentioned at the time, but we see it later on, after Balaam goes home, he has the bright idea that, that says, hey, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we can't curse them, but how about if we trick them? How about if we lead God's people away from God? Here's an idea. Send, send the women down there from Midian. And maybe we can seduce them into immorality and idolatry against their God. And then he'll withdraw his hand of blessing from them. Which they do. And, they, and the Israelites sin. And God brings judgment and discipline on them. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, who is uh, you know, very zealous for God, makes atonement for the people in putting a stop to this sin and ends the plague, and God is pleased. That's a lot of story, but it's not here. Why did he leave this out when it's such a big deal? He just passes right over it. Then they left Oboth. Then they left Eim, uh, which is Eabarim, and camped at Dibon Gad. So he just moves right on. We're just, you know, God doesn't bring up their sin. God doesn't tell them. I wonder if any of them other than Moses even knew about what was going on with Balaam and the king of Moab. They certainly didn't at the time. They may not have known until they read the account themselves later on. God often doesn't explain to us what he's doing. And he leaves these things out of this uh, recounting, this review of the stages of the journey. 47, they left Alman Diblathaim and camped in the, in the mountains of Abarim near Nebo. Then they left the mountains of Abarim and camped on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from the Jericho. There on the plains of Moab, which is where they are now, they camped along the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth to Abel Shatim. So they're taking up all this space there on the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. They're going to get to Jericho in Joshua. In the meantime, God's going to finish what He started in preparing them for it. And part of that preparation is here to remind them of the whence, where they came from, what God has done for them in the past. Why? Because of what's going to happen in verses 50 and following. God's going to tell them, when you cross the Jordan, here we're, we're looking at the Jordan, when you go across here, that's when it kicks in. That's when you're going to need to remember when you see the giants that you ran away from before, you're going to need to know that God will not fail you. You're going to need to know that when you walk away from your God, you will have trouble. <coughs> Pardon me. 
You're going to need to know that if you dally with the godless, you will become like them and you will walk into their sin. They're going to need to know that. Our core reality for today as we look at this text is therefore in your program and on the screen. It's pretty simple. Knowing God's faithfulness in the past enables us to trust Him with our future. Knowing God's faithfulness in the past enables us to trust Him with our future. The Israelites are going into an unknown future in as much as they don't know necessarily what they're going to face. They this time, don't seem to send the spies, at least it's not recorded for us, they don't seem to send spies into the land. I think maybe Moses learned his lesson last time, said, the less you know, the better. That's my speculation. Let's not, let's not play. But they're going to have to know when they get into the battle that even though the odds are overwhelming, even though everything we see says we cannot win, we know that when we walk with God, we cannot lose. He already owns it all. And He's already given it to us. We just have to go in and take it. And so God says, when you cross the Jordan, go in and take possession of this. Because I've given it to you to possess. Not, not just to talk about, not in theory, but the reality of God's presence with His people and the possession that He has given to His people, the blessings that He has in store, that's not theoretical. It's also not necessarily what they think it is. That's been the struggle straight through this whole book. All through the book of Numbers, they keep wanting blessings now from God. They keep wanting blessings on their time and, and, and according to their wish list, and God says, I have a different plan. And they say, oh, no, we got to go back to Egypt. Oh, we're done with this. This whole walking with God is hard. We, we've been marching, you know, three days. <laughs> if you've been with us, then you might remember that the, the first time they start to grumble against God, they're only three days into the journey. This is 40 years later. They haven't finished it. But three days in, they're like, oh, it's so hard. Are, are we there yet? And God is a much better father than I am. He doesn't get nearly as irritated, I don't think. But, but the, the judgments that come, come because they want to be God. They want to be the boss. They want to tell God, this is how it's supposed to be. God, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to provide for us. This is how you need to defend us. And if I don't see it, if I don't understand it, then it must not be real. You must not be here. How can I trust you if I can't see it, if I can't understand it myself? Feels kind of familiar, doesn't it? How often do you and I go through that same thing? How often do we come up against circumstances that just seem hard? So hard. to Not, not even hard to get through, but just hard to even imagine how God could possibly bring anything good out of this horrific situation. 
We think because we don't get it. Now, we would never say this out loud, but it must mean God doesn't get it either. Because I can't do anything about it, it must mean God can't do anything about it either. And our lips say one thing, but our hearts and our minds say something else, and we don't really know how to go forward. And the Lord says the way to go forward starts by looking backward. Remember the whence, so you can be strong in the wither. So that you can say from the depths of your heart, with all sincerity, whither thou goest, I will go. I will follow you, Lord, no matter what it means, because I know that you have been faithful to me no matter what in the past. All right, spent a lot of time going through that. Let's, let's fill in some blanks here. As we review this story, here's what we see in the children of Israel. On these first two, you can see they're in italics on, on your uh, program there. Looking back on the journey so far, God's people are reminded that our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful to His promises. That's the point. They're looking back on the journey, and as they look at the journey so far, God is having Moses remind them that our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful to His promises. And interestingly, in the focus here, the emphasis is not on their unfaithful choices or even the consequences. The emphasis is on God remaining faithful to His covenant promises to His covenant people. As I mentioned before, it's worth noting that while recalling all the various stages of the journey inevitably reminds the people of their unfaithful choices. There's no way around it. They've, They've heard the stories. They know. They've been told. They know why they wandered in the desert for 40 years. It's pretty clear. The Lord's record here does not highlight their failures. The facts of the consequences that shape the journey are not denied. God doesn't undo it or downplay it. He just doesn't bring it up. He moves forward. They can't be denied. They can't be ignored. But the Lord conspicuously does not include any mention here of their foolishness, wickedness, weakness, and rebellion. It is enough for them to remember. He does not cause them to dwell on failure. Let me say that again. I think it's important for us to recognize this. It's enough for them to remember. He does not cause them to dwell on failure. Even the death of Aaron is portrayed as a significant fact of great loss, but no mention is made here of the sin that led to it. All of us who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ should pay attention to this dynamic. If you have turned from your way to God's way, you've recognized that you've been separated from from God, from the source of life, from the very reason for your existence, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that you've been separated from that because of sin, and you've come to realize that Jesus Christ is your only hope. And you've turned it all over to Him. If that's the case, then you need to realize 
how God handles this situation for Israel as a dynamic that is also true of how He handles our situation. We must never forget who we were before Christ redeemed us. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that we were dead in our sins. By nature, we were children of wrath. That's what was our nature. Wrath and only wrath. But that is no longer who we are. We died with Christ. And we've been raised to a new life in Him. That's the symbol of Christian baptism. Believer's baptism is the immersing underwater to symbolize our burial with Christ, that we are united with Him in His death and His burial. And when we come up out of that water, it is to symbolize that we have been united with Him by faith in His resurrected life, raised to walk in a newness of life. Romans 5.12-6.14 to are a very clear picture of what happens spiritually in that. The baptism doesn't do it, but the baptism is, is an illustration of it. We're not who we were. It's not right for us to dwell on our failures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are entirely new creatures in Christ. The old us is gone and has been replaced with a whole new person. So, stop dwelling on your sins, shortcomings, and failures. Christ has taken them from you. And the Lord has cast them as far from you as the east is from the west. Why should you dwell on what Christ has already paid for and the Lord chooses to forget? That doesn't mean be okay with sin. That's not even an option. I, I really don't even have to bring that up. I'm going to bring it up anyway, but I really don't have to bring it up. Because if you are in Christ, if you have been regenerated, made new, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, you cannot be okay with sin. You can't. It's not that you shouldn't. You're not capable of it any longer. Christians still sin, right? Say amen if you've sinned. But it's not okay with us. Because it's contrary to our new nature. It's contrary to who we are. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. So when we live that zombie life, the undead, this coming back kind of thing, where we are living according to who we used to be, it tears us apart inside. We still do it. We can't live with it anymore. I hate that part of me. And then I realize, that's not actually part of me. It's something parasitic that still lives in me. But it's not me. Because Christ died and I died with Him. Now all that's left is Christ in me. Stop dwelling on your sins. So in this journey we see that while while our unfaithful choices have consequences, God remains faithful to His promises. We also see in the second part um, that just as we see in our core reality, knowing God's faithfulness in the past enables us to trust Him with our future. Notice this. Actively remembering what God has done for us and for others strengthens our faith to trust and obey Him in whatever lies ahead. 
There's a lot of words there. Actively remembering what God has done for us and for others. So it's not just what we've experienced in our lives, what we've seen in others' lives, and perhaps most importantly, what we see recorded in the Scriptures, what God has done throughout the ages for all of His people throughout all generations. When we see these things and actively focus our mind on remembering them, actively remembering what God has done for us and for others, strengthens our faith to trust and obey Him in whatever lies ahead. Put trust and obey so that it would be in your mind as these two things and maybe think of a a hymn that would stick in your head. We didn't sing it today, but and we're not going to sing it later, so don't get excited, Mom. She's going to yell at me because as soon as you said that, I knew we were going to sing that song. No, we're not. But really didn't need to because biblical trust, biblical faith is demonstrated in obedience. They're not two separate things. It's two sides of the same coin. Faith is obedience. Obedience is faith. Obedience, apart from faith, isn't really obedience. If I'm obeying because I'm checking it off a list, I'm not actually trusting God and obeying Him. I'm doing what I think fits, what I think is going to get me over, is going to benefit me. At, at, At the very most spiritual, it's just treating God like a rabbit's foot. If I do this, God's going to give me stuff. We hear that kind of stuff in the prosperity gospel all the time. If you just have enough faith, God will take away all your diseases because by His stripes we're healed. That's not what that passage is about. Please, people, let's always read the Bible in context. Let's see what the Bible says about the Bible, not make stuff up. So the prosperity gospel says if you do the right things, if you think the right thoughts, if you have the right level of faith, and in its most egregious forms, if you will give this seed of faith by giving to my ministry, then God will bless you and He'll pour out temporal blessings on you. Hogwash. If that's how it worked, then the more obedience, the more faith, the more prosperity, right? The less struggle, the less pain. Who is more faithful and more obedient than Jesus? Somebody want to answer that? Who was more obedient and faithful than Jesus? Not any person ever who suffered more than Jesus. No one ever. So throw that garbage out of your mind. Let the Bible tell us. Actively remembering what God has done for us and for others strengthens our faith to trust and obey Him in whatever lies ahead. We need to know that God is faithful when He doesn't seem to be faithful. We need to focus our minds on what is in reality, not what seems to be in our perception. Was God ever unfaithful to Jesus? No, not ever. God has blessed Jesus, the Son, more than anyone else. But in the meantime, He suffered more than anyone else. God's people will suffer. That's reality. That's part of living in a sinful world that has rejected God. We are here, and because we are here as ambassadors in a hostile territory where the world around us, the world system, and the ruler of this world hates our God, he therefore hates our God's ambassadors. 
and we will suffer. That's true. So if suffering is our lot, then it's going to take a lot of faith to be able to go forward into that future. And we gain that faith not blindly. God never calls us to a blind faith, but to a reasonable faith. Come, let's reason together, he says in Isaiah. God calls us to a faith based on evidence, based on his track record. It's no accident that the Lord pairs the review of the journey uh, with the command that he gives them now to go in and, and take this land. He knows they're going to need to remember the past to be strong enough for what comes next. They've come to the end of their time in the wilderness and they're about to receive what God had promised long ago, but there are still giants. There are still enemies in the land. And there's much work to do. He's already told them, I'm not going to drive them all out in a day. This is going to be a process. Because if I drove them out in the day, you couldn't handle picking up the land. So as you go through this process of driving them out, know in advance, I'm here and I'm faithful. They're going to need the faith to obey the Lord and not shrink back as the previous generation did. And the foundation of that kind of faith is fact. It's not in your program, but you might want to jot that down. The foundation of faith is fact. The faith required to follow God into an unknown future stands on His long-standing record of known faithfulness in the past. The Lord does not call us to a blind faith, but to a reasonable, justifiable faith based on His own track record of being trustworthy. The record of the stages of the journey is to remind God's people that He has never failed nor abandoned them, even when they, knew, when they know full well that they deserved it. He doesn't have to remind them. He doesn't have to you know, beat on them and say, oh, remember how you failed? Remember? Remember? Huh? Remember what? Yeah, remember? Now, every once in a while in their history, He does need to do that. The prophets will do that regularly and point out, do you, do you actually realize who you were? You deserve nothing. Moses will say that in Deuteronomy. God, God didn't choose you because you were great. You were the least of all. You were nothing. God chose you because of His grace. But here as He recalls for them the journey, He focuses on His faithfulness despite them already knowing, remembering, recognizing their unfaithfulness. The record of the stages of the journey is to remind God's people that He has never failed nor abandoned them, even when they know full well that they deserved it. When they were unfaithful, God remained faithful. When they were weak, He was strong. When there seemed to be no way, no hope, no future, the Lord Himself was their way, their hope, their future. Keeping that firmly in mind gave them a firm place to stand, just as David said in Psalm 40. When we feel overwhelmed, when things seem to take us down, we can stand on the reality of the past that God has always been faithful and count on Him for the future. So, once we get past this, 
this picture of them, there are three things that, that we see, three principles that we should remember, that we see them remembering, and then some things to do. So first, remember that God rescues, defends, and provides for His people, even when we can't understand how. Remember that God rescues, defends, and provides for His people, even when we can't understand how. We see this throughout this story. God delivered them. He rescued them out of Egypt, defended them against the mighty army, and every army that came against them, was long, for every time that they were walking with the Lord, they found victory, and nothing could come against them. He provided for their needs, even when they didn't understand how. Lord, there's no water. Here's a rock. Rocks don't have water, but I'm going to bring water from the rock. And the people grumbled because they didn't understand how God could possibly do it. And that grumbling was sin. But God doesn't fail us. Because God has always been true to His Word, we can count on, we can count on Him always to be true to His Word. Let me say that again because I stumbled through it. Because God has always been true to His Word, we can count on Him always to be true to His Word. I had the emphasis on the wrong syllable there, didn't I, Jessica? God doesn't change. Back in Numbers 23, you don't have to turn here. I'm just going to throw a couple of verses at you so that you can see them. You can jot them down if you like. Numbers 23, 19, as God was speaking through the false prophet to the hateful king, a true word of blessing toward his people, Balaam says in response to Balak, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And God had spoken blessing over his people. Did you really think he was going to change his mind and go back on it? 1 Samuel 15, 29. This is where... Uh, this is where... Uh, <laughs> Samuel is drawing attention uh, to the people of Israel of what God has done and is doing and will do. It says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Psalm fifty-five, nineteen: God who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them those who oppose God's people, and humble them because they have no fear of God. James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. See, people do change, don't they? If your faith is in people instead of God, you're going to be disappointed, Right? If people have hurt you in the church, I hate to tell you, but that's normal. Because people kind of stink. We're created in God's image. He loves His creation. He loves those who, who bear His image. But the reality is sin has messed us up. And we are all weak-willed and failing. And somebody is going to hurt your feelings, you're going to have to deal with that. And if that causes you to walk away from church, then your faith wasn't in God, it was in people. It was in an institution. But the church isn't an institution. 
The church is an organism. The church is a body made up of sinners. If you find one that's perfect, don't go there because you'll mess it up because you're a sinner. And you won't find one that's perfect. But God doesn't change, even though we do. We trust God based on the logical conclusion that the God who does not change and has always proven Himself to be faithful will always prove Himself to be faithful in the future. No matter what may come. Even if we don't see or understand the results. You can jot down, I think it might be listed for you in your program, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 1 points out that, that faith, the nature of faith, is to be sure and certain of that thing that we know is true even though we don't see it presently, even though we don't perceive it. We may don't, maybe don't understand it, but we are sure that it's true and we hold on to that, right? And then the writer of Hebrews goes through a whole list of Old Testament saints who trusted God and acted in obedience because they trusted God. And he finishes the chapter by saying, all these, they didn't receive the promise in their lifetime. They were faithful. They knew that God was faithful and God doesn't change. And so they obeyed. But they didn't see the fruition. They didn't see it all come together yet. And that's true for us as well. We can trust God for our future when we remember what He has done, even if we don't understand or see the results that we expect. Notice this. In addition to remembering that God rescues, defends, and provides for His people, even when we can't understand how, there is a call here to remember that when God's people walk in His will, no enemy can overcome us. When God's people walk in His will, no enemy can overcome us. Now, this is what they've already seen. They're going to see it again. They're going to be reminded by uh, by Moses and Joshua that if they obey God, everything's going to go great. If they don't obey God, everything's going to not go so great, right? But they've already seen this on the journey. Not one enemy could stand against them because the Lord was with them. He was on their sides, on their side. In, in, the, in the biblical sense, when we talk about God being with us, we're not talking about God's presence, that, that God is present with us. God is omnipresent, so it's not that. But we are praying that God will be alongside us, with us in the sense of being on our team, in support of us. And really what that means is to be with Him. In, in number 6, the, the priests are called to, uh, to stamp God's name on the people with this blessing, this benediction. May the Lord uh, bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord then also turn His face toward you it's, it's the picture of intimacy. God is revealing Himself, but God is with you in turning His face towards you and give you peace. That's the picture. But God was already with them. It was a prayer for God to be with them in the sense of them really being with God. The only times the Israelites faced defeat on this journey was when they, when they walked away from the Lord and tried to fight according to their own agenda and in their own strength. In Numbers 14, you don't have to turn there, but just you can jot it down and check it out and make sure that I'm telling you the truth. If you were with us, you'll remember. In Numbers 14, after the people rebelled, and God said, that's it, take a hike. 
you're, you're, you're going to have a 40-year time out in the wilderness until this whole generation is passed. Then I'm going to keep my word through the next generation. And then they said, oh, you know what? We changed our minds. We want to go up and fight the Amalekites. And God said, no. Moses said, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking? God's already told you what's going on. You didn't want to do it when he told you to do it. You don't get to do it now. And they said, yeah, we're going to do it anyway. Can you guess how it turned out? They got thrashed. They, they beat them senseless. Compare that to what happens in, in chapter 21 when they come in the name of the Lord and the Lord is with them and they just whoop everybody. Everybody's so wiped out that, that Balak, the king of Moab, shakes in his boots in chapter 22 and has to bring in the false prophet to try to bring a curse on them. This whole idea of knowing that when they walk with God, no enemy can defeat them would serve as the motivation for their faith and obedience later as they entered the land. I don't know if these are in your program or not, but you can jot these references down. Leviticus 26, verses 3 to 10. When they're receiving the law and the Lord has Moses tell them that if they will keep all the commands, they're going to be blessed in everything that they do. They're going to drive out all the enemies. They're not going to have sickness and disease. They're going to have great prosperity. Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 19, and then also Deuteronomy 7, 11 to 24. Same kind of thing. We're seeing this uh, this is coming later, after this time, before Moses dies. They're about to go in, and he gives them this second reminder of the law. And it says the same kind of thing. Listen, if you'll just do everything God says, if you just walk with Him, you can't lose. But if you don't, if you're going to go your way instead of God's way, then His hand's going to be against you the same as it would be against the, the pagans out here. Joshua confirmed the reality of this in his parting words to the nation. In Joshua 23, 14, he says this, Now I'm about to go, to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. When God's people walk in God's will, there is no enemy literal physical enemy, spiritual enemy, circumstantial enemy. There is no enemy that can defeat them. We stand in victory in Him. Then we also see the call to remember this. Remember that those who belong to God must live like it. And those who oppose God receive His wrath. Those who belong to God must live like it, and those who oppose God receive His wrath. This has been the picture that we've been seeing throughout this journey. So as God recaps it for them, all of these things are flooding back to them. God gave them the law at Sinai and called them to live holy lives, to be set apart to Him. He says, I've separated you. I've called you out from the nations that you should be mine. When they failed to do that, failed to live lives set apart to Him according to His law, they faced the consequences. When they grumbled against God, when they walked into sin, God's hand was against them, not to destroy them, but to discipline, to purge. Judgment begins with the house of God. 
Let me just say, as God's people here today, we need to spend a little less time complaining about all of the ungodliness out in the world and a whole lot more time looking at how do we purge the ungodliness out of my mirror? we got to get it out of the house of God. Judgment begins here. God says, these are my kids. I expect my kids to look like me, to act like me, to follow my law. If you live in this house, you obey. Why do we spend so much time worrying about people in a different house? They don't belong to the house of the Lord. We want to rescue them. We want to help them to see truth so that the Holy Spirit can get a hold of their minds and say, listen, you are traveling the road of death and you need to come to life. You need to come to Jesus. But did we really expect unbelievers to act like believers? Remember that those who belong to God must live like it. And those who oppose God receive His wrath. The reason we want to reach out and help them find Christ is that while judgment begins with the house of God, He disciplines and purges His people because that which defiles and corrupts cannot be tolerated by a holy holy and just God. But those who are outside the covenant will be destroyed. With God's people, throughout their failures, even their adultery, the Lord was merciful to His covenant people. He didn't reject them completely. There were consequences, but He didn't reject them completely. Those who are outside of the covenant, who don't belong to God, they reject God as Lord. Those who reject God's rule receive God's wrath. The Midianites who seduced the Lord's people into sin, we just saw this uh, just uh, two weeks ago. Those who seduced the Lord's people into sin were utterly destroyed. God did punish His people. He disciplined them, and many of them died. But the Midianites who led them into that, who came against God and against His people, utterly destroyed. This, This principle is just as true today. Sin earns death. Now, we've, we've heard it, but very often we hear it with our ears and we don't hear it with our minds and our hearts. We know that, but yet we somehow think that we can grade out sin. And some sins are worthy of death and other sins, well, it's just kind of a little peccadillo. It's not that big of a deal. You know, and... and you know, that little granny that lives next door to me that's so sweet and bakes me cookies all the time that doesn't know Christ, I'm sure God's going to, you know, give her a pass and, you know, she's going to get to heaven. It doesn't work that way, guys. We are by nature, from birth, sinners, dead in sin and objects of wrath. None of us deserve anything good. We deserve only hell and judgment from the God who made us because of our rebellion and rejection of Him. But God who is rich in mercy, God alone, because of His grace alone, offers us hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. But those who reject God's rule receive God's wrath. God's wrath is inescapable. The wages of sin is death. Only His covenant people, those who receive God's offer of mercy through Jesus Christ, only those who receive Jesus Christ by faith, only those receive mercy. 
Because the payment for our sin was paid by Him at the cross. If we don't receive Him by faith, that payment is not applied to us. Therefore, Jesus Himself says, you stand condemned already because you've not believed in the one that God sent. We who belong to Him are called to live holy lives set apart to Him. But when we fail, He will not reject us because He remains faithful to His covenant. Those who do not receive Christ are already rejected and outside the covenant. For those who are in Christ, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we're faithless, if, if, if we aren't strong enough on our faith and we stumble and we fail to obey, if we are faithless, He will remain faithful for He cannot disown Himself. If we've been united to Christ, if we are in Christ, then to reject us would be to reject Christ. God did that on the cross one time for all time. Christ can never be rejected. God cannot disown Himself. Therefore, when we are in Him, we cannot either. So those are things that we see them remembering in this journey and we need to remember as well. And they help us to do these next two things. First, receive God's blessing. Receive God's blessings by obeying God's commands. Receive God's blessings by obeying God's commands. Those passages that I gave to you in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 6 and 7 point that out. But notice in James 1, verses 22 to 25, James writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, I would underline that phrase if I were you, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The law of God gives freedom to those who have life in Christ. It's not going to give you life because the law points out what is separated from God. It points out sin. It convicts of sin. It shows our shortcomings. But if we're in Christ, then the law gives freedom. Because we are already alive in Him, now we are children finally free to obey. And the one who created all of it tells us how it works. Follow the instructions and it works really well. The blessings that come from obedience in God are first by faith. And second, that the blessings that come by faith produce good fruit in our lives. All of the things that come from the fruit of the Spirit promote peace and joy and love among the people. It's a reflection of God's character. Disobedience is the opposite of that. So we receive God's blessings through obedience. Finally, remove everything that defiles or face inevitable consequences. Remove everything that defiles or face inevitable consequences. 
They were to receive God's blessing by going in. That was the entire point of this whole thing, was God was giving blessing to His people. So He says, go in, take possession of the land. I've given it to you to possess. Not to think about, not to talk about, but to be yours, to live in it, to use it. When you give someone a gift, right, and they say, oh, thank you for that gift, and they leave it on the shelf and never take it out, never use it, it doesn't really feel like a lot of appreciation, right? Like, man, maybe I didn't give them a great gift. God only gives good gifts. He gave them the land to use. He gave you salvation to live in it. It was for freedom that you were set free. But we have to remove everything that defiles or corrupts or it's going to cause trouble for us. They were told, when you go in here, drive out completely the inhabitants of the land. Don't just drive them out. Destroy these objects that they use for worship, the idols, the the high places. Tear it down. Burn it. Several times in several places, God gives them these instructions. Little side note, they fail to do that. And it plagues them for the rest of Israel's history. Just as God said. And eventually, God does to them in the exile what He had planned to do to the pagan nations that were there. And He drives them out of the land. All the charges to take the land involve completely removing the enemies of God and all their practices and culture. We need to recognize that holding on to the world brings trouble and judgment. James 4.4 says, You foolish, adulterous people, don't you realize friendship with the world is enmity toward God? If we are friends with the world, if we're holding on to this world as if the things of this world are important, if we love worldliness, we are in opposition to God and He will come against us rather than be with us. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, isn't, isn't it written? Don't you know this already? Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals, or another rendering corrupts good character. This is what happens in Israel because they don't drive people out. They become corrupted and defiled. And over the generations, all of the ungodliness that they did not get rid of takes root. And it ruins them. You and I as Christians are called to live a life set apart to God. And if we don't get the junk out, if we don't drive out the old man who's already been dead, but the, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the body of sin, the sin that lives in us, that zombie life, if we don't get rid of that, those of you who know anything about zombies know they eat your brains. Sin makes us stupid. If we let it remain, if we dally with godlessness, we will be corrupted and defiled. In that same letter, a little earlier, Paul writes to the 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 11, But I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Pretty important to keep that purity and integrity in the church. 
He doesn't say not to associate with the people of the world because you'd have to leave the world for that. And if we don't associate with people in the world, then how are they ever going to hear and know and be saved? But not in this house. Godlessness cannot remain here. It's interesting that the Israelites throughout the Old Testament were not forbidden to do commerce with other nations, but they couldn't let them in. They couldn't bring in the practices. They couldn't marry into their families and be yoked together with them. What matters more than anything else is are you in or are you out? Are you His? Do you belong to His family or do you not? And the only way to come to God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Anything else must be removed, driven out, burned, and destroyed, or it will defile and corrupt us. Okay, so knowing God's faithfulness in the past enables us to trust Him with our future, both then in Israel and today. This is the purpose of the ordinances, the sacred ceremonies of the church. In baptism, we testify to what God has done in us through Christ, and we commit to following Him with our whole person. In the remembrance celebration or communion, we remember God's mercy to us at the cross and the price of our freedom. Actively remembering what He has done is what moves us forward in faith. If He has done this for us in the midst of our wretched sinfulness, how can we think for a moment that He would abandon us now? I'm going to close with one scripture. It's a familiar one because I've read it so many times. From Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 28. And with this we close. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the victory that we have in Him. Lord, help us to remember all that You have done, to worship You for all You've done to find strength and faith for tomorrow because of all you've done. And Lord, in this moment, 
May we remember the price of our freedom. May we remember the sacrifice made for us on the cross that allows us to be your children and to have life. Father, may that reality govern every part of who we are and what we do. In the name of the one who gave himself for us, amen.